0: This is Naima Novetsky from alatorah.org. Today's Torah cast will explore the prohibitions of necromancy and seeking out the dead, questioning how Torah views magic in general and the sorcery of the Ov and in, in particular. The prohibition is mentioned three distinct times in Parashat Kedoshim, teaching that both practicing such sorcery and even just seeking out an Ov or Yudoni is a capital crime. Elsewhere, in Dvarim 18, Consulting with the Ov Inyaduni is mentioned amongst a list of other prohibited magical practices, including divination, soothsaying, and sorcery. These verses contrast these banned modes of inquiring about the future and attempting to gain esoteric knowledge with an alternative, permitted, and desired method of attaining knowledge prophecy. The verses raise an important question Does the Torah believe in black magic? Does the contrast between the necromancer and prophet suggest that only by accessing the latter can one attain truth, since sorcery is a fraudulent art? Or is Hashem saying that both methods might actually achieve similar goals, just that one is the desired path while the other is not? In other words, are magical practices prohibited because they are false, or because despite their efficacy, they are somehow spiritually harmful? We'll explore these questions through an analysis of Sefer Shmuel Chapter 28, which perhaps more than any other chapter in Tanakh, makes one question the workings of black magic and the sorcery of the Ov Enidoni in particular. The chapter describes how King Shaul seeks out an Balata Ov to bring back the prophet Shmuel from the dead, so as to seek his advice regarding the upcoming battle with the Philistines. A simple reading of the chapter implies that the Ov is in fact able to revive Shmuel, who then converses with Sha'ul and foretells the nation's defeat and Sha'ul's upcoming death. Does this story prove that there's truth in magical practices and that some humans really are capable of resurrecting the dead? Is this a rationally viable option? And if true, what does this suggest about the line between divine and human capabilities? In order to properly analyze our story, several other aspects of the narrative deserve further attention. Upon seeing Shmuel rise from the dead, the Baalata'ov cries out. What is the reason for such a reaction? If she was accustomed to seeing the dead come alive, why express shock or fright? Second, though Sha'ul had disguised himself before approaching the Baalata'ov, immediately after reviving the prophet Shmuel, she recognizes the king. What suddenly gave him away? Is this a sign of supernatural power? Third, when describing Shmuel to Sha'ul, the woman does so in the most general of terms, mentioning only that he is elderly and wearing a cloak. Is she intentionally ambiguous because perhaps she has not seen the prophet and does not know what he looks like? On the other hand, despite this seemingly nondescript characterization, Sha'ul appears to find the woman's description compelling and is convinced by it that the prophet has appeared, suggesting that she somehow did accurately convey Shmuel's appearance. Finally, Shmuel speaks to Sha'ul of both past and future events. Is there any way that these would be known to the necromancer, or is this evidence that really it was Shmuel himself who spoke to Sha'ul? Not surprisingly, in exploring our questions, most commentators fall into one of two camps. Rationalists who emphatically deny the existence of magic and attempt to reinterpret Shmuel 28 in light of their beliefs, and those more mystically inclined, who assume that black magic is a real, if imprecise, art and who read our story more literally. Let's start with those who believe that magical powers exist and claim that the text can be read according to its simple sense. Malbim and the Moshe, two 19th-century commentators, claim that the Bala Ta'ov had the power to resurrect Shmuel and that he really did come back to life. Malbim nonetheless limits this ability, maintaining that a necromancer can affect only the material soul which stays with the physical body for 12 months after death. The noble soul, however, is immune to such magic as it returns to the creator immediately upon a person's demise. This caveat, besides giving reassurance that one's soul cannot totally be tampered with, also serves to enlarge the divide between human and divine abilities. Even if a human can revive the dead, this is only in a limited capacity. Assuming that the prophet really came back to life allows one to read the text without much reinterpretation. The woman could describe Shmuel because he had really appeared. His arrival is what clued her into the fact that the person coming to consult with her was King Sha'ul himself, leading her to scream at the realization. As Shmuel had full knowledge of past events, he could speak about them freely. And being a prophet, he could tell Sha'ul what was to occur in the future. From a textual perspective then, this approach presents no difficulties. But is it really a viable option to say that humans have such powers? The Ho'il Moshe points out that throughout history, there have been ideas that seem to defy rational thinking, and yet were later proven true and logical. As an example, he points to the concept of magnetism. In earlier times, many people assumed that the ability of an object to attract iron was magical and had no rational basis, yet modern scholars have explained it scientifically. As such, he says, we should not be quick to dismiss the possibility of certain magical practices having some natural explanation. If, though, divination and necromancy is a real art, why is it prohibited? The 13th-century Spanish commentator Ramban answers that it's forbidden only because Hashem prefers other modes of divining, that Bnei israel seek the future only through a prophet of Hashem. The danger of black magic is twofold. First, because it is imprecise and not always accurate, and second, because a practitioner easily comes to see his or herself as a god. Despite the holy moshe's rational defense of so-called magic many still scoff at the notion one well-known skeptic Ibn Ezra speaks harshly against believers regarding the, the ov and idoni he writes amru emet emet and the brainless have said that if necromancy and magic were not true The text would not have prohibited them, and I say the opposite, for the Torah does not prohibit that which is true, but only that which is false, and the evidence is in idolatry. According to Ibn Ezra, there is no such thing as magic, and the reason the practices are forbidden is precisely because they are nonsensical and have no utility. He brings proof from the prohibition of idolatry. It is prohibited specifically because there is no other alternate god besides Hashem i.e. not because it has real powers is and is undesired competition. How then would Ibn Ezra understand the revival of Shmuel? He would likely read the chapter along the lines of the 10th century Rav Shmuel ben Havni who, like Ibn Ezra, assumes that necromancy is a fraudulent art and therefore suggests that Shmuel did not, in fact, come back to life. Rav Shmuel ben Havni asserts that the sorceress simply tricked Sha'ol into believing that she did, as she tricked all her clients. The woman perhaps pretended that she saw Shmuel and arranged for another person to hide and speak in a low voice to sound like the Prophet. Alternatively, she disguised her own voice and used ventriloquism to throw the sound so it appeared to emerge from a different place. Since Sha'ul was already anxious and strongly desired to speak to Shmuel, he was easily deceived. How, if the of was merely a fraud, did she recognize the disguised Sha'ul? And why did this occur only after Shmuel was revived? Rav Shmuel ben ben Haffnicka'on suggests that really the Baalat Ta'of had recognized the king immediately upon his arrival. However, she kept this knowledge to herself until later, so that Sha'ul would think that she identified him only through supernatural powers. To this end, she screamed, as if frightened by the revelation, even though she had known it was Sha'ul all along. How was she able to describe Shmuel in a way that convinced Sha'ul that she was actually seeing the Prophet? Possibly, the Baalat Ta'ov might have seen Shmuel while he was still alive, and thus was able to describe him to Sha'ul, even though she did not revive the Prophet. However, even if she had never seen the Prophet, her description was vague enough that it could refer to any number of people. The fact that Sha'ul was convinced might have more to do with his desire that she resurrect Shmuel than with the specifics of her description. Perhaps the biggest question on this approach is how the necromancer could so accurately predict what was to happen to Sha'ul, and how she could refer to past conversations between Shmuel and Sha'ul if she really had no access to the Prophet. Rav Shmuel ben Chafnikaon posits that Shmuel's earlier prophecy that Hashem was going to punish Sha'ul and cut off his dynasty was public knowledge. Similarly, all Israelites knew about Sha'ul's sin and the fact that David was supposed to be his successor. As such. The Baalat could speak of these facts even without reviving Shmuel. Moreover, since the necromancer was aware of both the Philistine strength and Sha'ul's low morale and state of mind, it was not difficult for her to surmise that Israel was going to lose the coming battle and that Sha'ul would die. Her words were not proof that she was privy to some esoteric knowledge, but simply an educated guess. Several commentators take issue with this approach not because they believe in magic, but because they think it takes too many liberties with the text. Rav Goon, for example, points out that throughout the chapter, when the sorceress or her assistant are speaking as if they are Shmuel, the verse writes Vayomer Shmuel, suggesting that it was indeed the prophet Shmuel, and not the Baalat Ta'ov who was speaking. Rav Shmuel ben Havni responds that this is simply a short way for the verse to say that the sorceress said her speech in the name of Shmuel. Alternatively, one could respond that the verse is speaking from the perspective of Shaul, who believed that Shmuel was talking. Rafsadi, though, is not convinced, arguing that if any time the text says, and he said, a reader can posit that it is really another person speaking, this will lead people to play loosely with the text and distort its meaning. This desire to understand the text somewhat literally, coupled with a rationalist skepticism towards magic, leads Rafsadi to an interesting middle position. He posits that while the Baalat Ha'ov on her own was incapable of calling up the dead, Shmuel was in fact revived by Hashem himself in order to allow him to speak to Sha'ul. According to this position, humans do not have the ability to bring back the dead, and the sorceress normally only trick people into believing that she did. As the Baalat Ha'ov had never in her life actually revived someone, she was shocked that Shmuel really had come back to life and screamed in terror upon seeing him. The fact that a miracle had occurred might have led her to conclude that the person seeking Shmuel must have been important enough to merit one, leading her to recognize Sha'ul. As this position posits that Shmuel really came back to life, it easily explains how the woman was able to describe Shmuel accurately. She was really seeing him, so she simply described what she saw. Moreover, Shmuel could refer back to past events in which he had participated, and given his prophetic powers, he could foretell the future. At first glance then, this position has all the advantages. It can read the chapter according to its simple sense, but need not posit posit that humans have magical capabilities bordering on the Divine. Nonetheless, this approach too is not without difficulties. If Hashem is the one to bring Shmuel back to life, the Prophet's initial reaction to Sha'ul, anger at being raised from the dead, is somewhat difficult. If Hashem revived him, why is Shmuel so upset? Rafsadia might answer that this is Shmuel and Hashem's way of telling Shaul that the manner in which he sought to know Hashem's will and future events was wrong. A bigger question relates to Hashem's decision to resurrect Shmuel at all. Considering that Shaul had initially sought Hashem's advice through permitted means, asking prophets and priests, why did Hashem not simply answer Shaul through these permitted methods that Shaul had sought to begin with? In addition, by pretending to use necromancy, Hashem was basically leading people to believe that there was real magic in the oath and power in the sorcerers to really bring back the dead. Why do that if such practices are prohibited? In summary, when trying to understand how and Ish came back to life, commentators struggled to balance their beliefs about the efficacy of magical practices with a simple reading of the text. This Malbim, who believes that magical powers exist, Claim that the te- claims that the text can be read literally, for the Baalata'o really had the ability to resurrect Shmuel. In contrast, Rav Shmuel ben Chafni Gaon, convinced that necromancy is a fraudulent art, prefers to reread the text and suggests that the sorcerer's merely tricked Sha'ul into thinking that Shmuel was revived. Rav Sadia takes a middle position, attempting to read the revival of Shmuel literally while simultaneously dismissing the abilities of the necromancer, leading to the theory that it was Hashem not the Ta'ov who evades Shmuel. So, does the Torah believe in magic? The answer to that is not so clear. But the prohibition is an important safeguard against arrogance and pride, ensuring that man recognize the line that divides the human and divine. This reminder is true even today, for though magicians might not exist, science and technology prevent, present some of the same dangers. For more topics related to Parshat Kedoshim, please visit alatorah.org.